I think being an influencer is a byproduct of you creating value for the world. Instead of saying, I want to be an influencer, you should say, I want to be a value to the world. I want to give generosity of myself and to mm -hmm. help others lessen their suffering and pain and help them achieve more joy in their life. And in doing so, you become more influential and then people may call you an influencer. When it comes to your career, there really is no one formula for success. And if someone had asked me 20 years ago what career I would be working in today, I doubt I would have said employer branding, a career that didn't even exist at the time. Some of the best stories I've ever heard didn't follow a plan. They simply embraced the journey. And that's why I've created this podcast, to share the many career stories that have shaped the people behind them, and to encourage future generations to trust more in the process, instead of stressing over getting it right the first time. I'm Steve, and welcome to the My Career Story Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the My Career Story podcast with me, your host, Steve Keith. Now, it might not feel like it right now, but opportunity is everywhere. Something today's penultimate guest of season two wholeheartedly believes in and who my co-host Chris Hunt and I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing a few weeks ago. Chris Du is an Emmy Award winning designer, director, CEO and chief strategist of Blind and the founder of The Future an online education platform with the mission of teaching 1 billion people how to make a living doing what they love. He currently serves as the chairman of the board for the SPGA and as an advisor to SalesHood. He has also served on several boards in addition to teaching sequential design for over 15 years at Art Centre College of Design as well as Otis College of Art and Design and lectured all over the world. Mr. Dew has given talks and conducted workshops on negotiations, pricing and budgeting, leadership mindset, branding, graphic and motion design, social media marketing, entrepreneurship, business management and client relations. And I'm thrilled to have him on the podcast today. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Excellent, good, good to hear. And I have another Chris with me as well, Chris Hunt, um, who is one of my friends and colleagues over in the UK. Hello, Chris. Hello, hello. Hello. Okay, cool. So you're going to have two people um, interviewing today, and this isn't a first for the uh, the podcast as well. So, but I'm going to launch straight into it and say, Chris, what is your career story? Ooh, how much time do we have to tell you my career story? <laughs> <laughs> my, my career began in. 1995 when I graduated Art Center I studied graphic design and packaging and I quickly transitioned from traditional print design into doing motion design a still relatively new field at that point in time there wasn't even a title for it but I was really excited I was excited about the prospect of being able to take things that I make move them on screen and tell a little bit of a story and that excited me a lot so there was a whole new world that was opening up involving direction animation editing visual effects that would take me forward for the next 20 plus years but more recently and i assume the reason why we're talking today is a little bit behind the education initiative that i've started in 2014 i believe and now it's called the future but basically we have this really really big mission to teach a billion people on planet earth how to make a living doing what they love and why do you think that, why is that important to you and why do you think it should be important to others? 
It's important to me because I've had a very fruitful and lucrative career. I've made more money than I ever thought possible being a creative human being. And I've gotten myself to a point in which I have to ask myself the bigger questions. Like, I'm not a young person anymore. I'm about to be 50 pretty soon. And I want to make sure that all the opportunities that are afforded to me, the privilege that I've had, uh, I get to pass on to other people. And it's channeled itself into education as the the way that I express this. And it gives me fulfillment. It gives me joy. And it's also how I make money today. And what I mean, what was what's the journey been in those years before that? It's kind of has there been anything along the way that's challenged you or kind of inspired you to really get to the point that you are with the future? Yeah, uh, the the challenges were there. There are many challenges. I, I think in our industry, in the creative industry, especially in Los Angeles, where the competition is cutthroat and mm -hmm. there are new people entering into the field seemingly almost a daily basis but for sure there are three really amazing private art schools that are pumping out creative people all the time and so you start to see this um, broadening out of the market where it's becoming a little bit diluted a little bit saturated so there's fierce competition that means you have to stay ahead of that every four or five years in terms of the new aesthetic the new ways of telling stories or just increase pressure on producing higher quality product for less money and using fewer resources. So this process of reinvention over the 20 plus years that I've been in business has happened almost every single uh, four year cycle. And you have to go through that. In the last cycle, the challenge is, is this, is that our consumption habits around advertising, commercials, watching TV, moving away from a set top box to pooling videos and content versus it being pushed to you means that we can now live in a world where we don't have to sit through commercials anymore. And if you're in the business of making commercials, that can be very problematic, which is the business that I had built for 20 years. I needed to find another way of making a living before the Titanic hit the iceberg. And that was through doing brand strategy, working with client direct, doing direct marketing, getting into social media, and ultimately finding that that was just another form of the same animal that I was just doing more client service work and that wasn't fulfilling to me anymore. I had already worked with some of the biggest bands and brands in the world from, from Nike to Sony to um, car manufacturers. We've done everything from dog food to car commercials and none of it was really taking me closer to where I wanted to be to find this sense of happiness and fulfillment. The big challenge there was how do I go from being behind the camera talent to being in front of camera talent and there was a huge learning curve and a lot of internal re resistance. Um, fear of of looking stupid, fear of being criticized by your peers, fear of saying something that can then later on go back to bite you in the butt where a client could see it and say, well, we don't want to work with you. We don't like what you're saying. So yeah. there was a lot of challenges there for sure. How did, how did you use that to overcome those then? So did you, did you self-teach? Did you take advice from mentors around you? Or Great question. I think I was um, very fortunate to have a friend who was extremely extroverted who was very comfortable with being on camera, he basically did not take no for an answer. So when I said, I don't want to do this, he said, all you have to do is sit there. You don't have to say anything. We're going to roll the camera. If you don't like it, we'll kill it. And you don't have to say anything. And through the repeated exposure of doing something, you become more comfortable with it. So my, my, my jaw at the end of each recording session was really tight and I had pain. Uh, that's how bad it was for me. And if anybody so 
morbidly curious about it, you can watch those early videos and you can see that I barely said anything. And over time, I started to say, well, how about I do the intro this time? And you would do it and you would mess up and you can't even say your own name. You can't introduce your own title. Mm. But through the exposure, you get that. And then you become the student. You start to study public personalities, late night show hosts, comedians, anybody that can speak and command attention, who has charisma. You watch TED Talks, you read books, you keep doing it, you keep practicing and you throw yourself out there and you face your fears. Mm. When, you, when you're speaking to a camera, and I've experienced this recently when I've been trying to um, take my, my content onto another level, I find that sometimes I go around in circles just over-rehearsing what I'm going to do before I press record or taking multiple takes. Um, and almost a little bit of imposter syndrome starts to creep in sometimes in scenarios that um, I wouldn't have normally thought they were. I've, I've, I have, I've been a teacher, I've done lots of public speaking, I've been on stages and spoken and never had that kind of lack of confidence in the work that I was doing. Have you experienced that out of interest? Well, for sure. I think in the beginning when you're doing something new, it's better to be over-prepared than to mm -hmm. be under-prepared. And I used to have nightmares, literally nightmares, thinking about being on camera, thinking I was prepared. And then when the cameras had go in front of a live audience, and they would throw a really easy softball question and I couldn't figure out the word to say and I felt like a fool. And those used to haunt me all the time. I remember uh, 48 hours leading up to a public speaking uh, engagement, I would, I just restless sleeping, I would be rehearsing and saying it over and over. You, it's like your, your mind is stuck on a track, a groove in the record and it would just play, <coughs> it, excuse me, it would just play over and over and over again and I was rewriting what I was saying in my mind the entire time so you can imagine once you step on stage I'm exhausted I now don't know what it is I'm supposed to be saying anymore but over over the years of doing this I start to adopt a different mentality a different way of looking at it and it's helped me out a lot the way I look at things now versus then back then I, I had probably a lot of ego issues at play here trying to sound smart to be better than everybody else to to appear to be intelligent well liked well rehearsed smooth never have a hiccup always in mm -hmm. control to totally surrendering all of that and just stepping onto the stage or in front of the microphone and thinking to myself, my entire goal here is to help somebody. And if I have something that's within my life, with my experience, something I've read, done, and if I can share it in a way that's helpful and meaningful to some people in the audience, then I'm here for them. And I'm, I, I want to be less of the star on the stage or in the spotlight and more as a servant to the people who show up. And I, I recognize and I remind myself all the time that these good people who show up have given me their most valuable things, which is their time and their attention. And also they've spent money to sit in that seat, honor them and shift the focus away from you. And it's allowed me to speak much more naturally. I think about a few things I want to say, but if I don't say it, it's okay. They don't know any better and I'm just going to be present to the moment and grounded in what it is that I'm doing. Yeah, it's really interesting. I know that one of the, the guests that I've had uh, in the first series of the pod, uh, Polly McGee, she's built a business around the good hustle and that focus of service um, to the people you're trying to get a message across. So it's great to hear that there's other people out there doing that. Um, Chris, I'll hand over to you for some uh, questions. Yeah, uh, I think that was really interesting. I think your last point there, do you think it helped with 
your self-branding and, you know, actually leveraging your name and actually starting the mission for the future? How do you think some of those um, learnings early in your careers actually helped you to develop your self-brand? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this predates me jumping onto camera, but I've been working with a business coach at that time probably for seven or eight years. Mm. And he made an observation and he really called me out. I mean, this is what your coach is supposed to do. Yeah. And he said that, he's like, I noticed something, Chris. Every time the clients come by, you're in the office. You never go out, you never talk to them. What's the deal here? And I said, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to begin the conversation. I don't know how to get out of the conversation. I'm an introverted person. And I think the team has it under control. And he made me realize something in that moment. He said, if the relationship is built between the client and your staff, what happens when the staff leaves? You're going to be held hostage. So you're going to be able, you're going to have to put up with whatever bad behavior that they exhibit. And we see this in a lot of corporate America where we see really big personalities, successful people, the corporations that they work for, let them get away with murder. They, they say yeah. completely inappropriate things. They behave in inappropriate ways just because the relationship isn't with the producer, with the writer. It's with who they see. So he made me realize that there was a one part encouragement and one part fear. And he said, let's make this easy for you. So he had he called the um, executive producers and the sales team together. And he said, look, Chris doesn't want to go talk to these people. And your job is to get them out of the conversation. So what they would do is like, hey, everybody, clients, we want you to meet the owner. Here he is. Uh, I'm pulling him from some other thing he's doing, but he just wanted to come in and say hi. And I would come in, I would say hi. And then on cue, a minute and a half into it, like, Chris, we got to pull you for that thing. It was all made up. It was completely fabricated. And through doing that, I got the sense of like how to get in a conversation, how to get out. So eventually, I just stayed there like, we have to go. And I said, no, I got it. We're good. So that's what happened. Yeah. And I started to develop these skills. Now, this is just the relationship I have with people in the room. But then the next thing he said is, you have a lot of talent. There's a lot of things that you know and take for granted. I want you to go and do public speaking. So that was the push and the prompt for me to go out and do something and get out of my cage and to be known because he said, the, the reason why people hire you is because they know who you are. But we have to broaden that reach, so go do it. And one thing leads to another. And for sure, if you're not visible, if you're not writing content, if you're not trying to help people, there's no influence being created here. It's really interesting that you say that. Very similar to my own journey. I know that a lot of um, feedback I had as I was going through my career was about that, that taking the next step and my desire to be more influential but not necessarily knowing how to do it. Um, I think there's potential, a lot of the time at the moment, there's, there's a big thing about being an influencer. And I have an opinion where I look and I go, well, there's a difference between being an influencer and a person who is influential. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I mean, so if, if there's somebody listening that may be, and I know a lot of young people that I've worked with in the past have got aspirations to be an influencer, what would you say to that? I'm going to get real blunt. Go for it. I'm going to say don't. Your motivation is misguided. I think being an influencer is a byproduct of you creating value for the world. 
Instead of saying, I want to be an influencer, you should say, I want to be a value to the world. I want to give generously of myself and to mm -hmm. help others lessen their suffering and pain and help them achieve more joy in their life. And in doing so, you become more influential and then people may call you an influencer. If we think about somebody who's who's relatively well-known and very influential, we think about somebody like the Dalai Lama, who's generally, is, unless you're from a particular government, is generally loved and revered, his holiness, right? And w w what does he, he have? He has robe, not, not many worldly possessions as far as I know, and he's just trying to ease the suffering of people. And because of that, we, we, we hold them up as, as a, an example of how we should live and conduct our lives. And I think that's really important. I see very young people, excuse me, I see very young people chasing the limelight, doing what they think is going to help get them on the radar and establish their personal brand, spouting out things that they don't really understand, mimicking those others that are that have put in the good work who are trying to help people and they become really poor echoes or reflections of the original thing and it just gets really mutated. I was talking to a friend of mine who is a father of two kids and he said it seems like it only takes 10 posts for 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 some people on on Instagram to take off their shirt or to do ridiculously stupid things because they're just so hungry for that attention for the for the like or the engagement the, for the follow that they start to lose who they are. And the danger of this is when it doesn't work, when people turn on you, well, who are you then? All you're doing is chasing some elusive, amorphous thing that wasn't real to begin with, and it can be quite addictive doing this. I, I, I've, I know that there are psych psychologists who say that social media is a real addiction. If you spend this much time with it, it's, and it's not much different than substance abuse. It just happens to be in a different form that we socially have accepted as okay so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very true, especially at the, um, the moment. I don't know. One of the things that I've been doing quite actively is uh, taking myself away from social media quite a lot, um, just because I'm very mindful of what's being served up to me in my feed and how that's affecting my mood and how I'm getting through the period that we're going through um, globally as well. So okay. I think that's a big part of it. Um, in that respect, um, what you've been saying about being able to look forward and evolve and kind of go in the next direction. Do you think there's anything coming on the horizon as a result of the pandemic, perhaps? And I know and where I'm coming from with this is that, especially with the, the whole uprising around Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter um, and people being much more, not necessarily much more, but being powerful around their voice and being mindful of their opinions that they're sharing. Is that a, sh a shift in the direction that you're talking about? Or? I sure hope so. I really do, because there's so much injustice and inequ inequity that's happening right now that is systemic, that there is the explicit racism that we see where people are are burning crosses and, and saying hateful things to things that are more kind of implicit that you're not even aware that you're racist. Uh, for example, when you see a person of color, uh, what are the thoughts that you have? Do you feel safe? Do you feel threatened? And, and there's a narrative that's being woven throughout our culture and society that we should fear certain kinds of people, that we should not trust them, that they're not as intelligent, less capable. And the reason why they're in certain economic situations that they are is because it's a self-inflicted wound. What we don't understand is there's been a system, especially here in America, that's been set up that is this 
indoctrination into the white or the white European is superior in all ways and forms. And then it impacts us. I had a conversation with my wife. I'm going to get real, real with you right now that it extends way beyond America, that generally speaking throughout the world, generally speaking, my wife's from Taiwan, that the white European is the standard bearer of all things good, fair, just, uh, uh, intelligent, handsome, whatever it is. And so we have an internal racism, a story that we're telling ourselves that if a, if a white Caucasian person comes into our society, that they're automatically better. They're afforded more grace and opportunity just because of that. And that's a problem. And this is because I think Americans and Europeans have been very good at marketing, very good at branding, very good at telling the story. And um, whoever wins uh, the war gets to write the history books, right? There's a George Orwell quote here. It's like whoever controls the past controls the future and whoever controls the present controls the past. And so these are the stories that are perpetuated and they become so deep in our culture society that we're not even aware of it anymore. We're not aware of it at all. And yeah. when we see things for what they are, finally, I think we have to come to some kind of objective truth and say, this is not right. If if the roles were reversed, what would be happening? How would we be feeling? And I just think that we're at this breaking point where we could see it. I've seen things that I've, I didn't think I would see in my lifetime here where people are looting and destroying things very close to where I live, away from the classic hood, if you will, in air quotes, and mm -hmm. it's happening here. And I, I think the, the, the violence that we're seeing is just a reflection on the many years of oppression and what has been going on. So it's just been uh, something that's been boiling up and it had to find a release valve. But this would be a shame if all of this came to no meaningful, impactful, long-term change. And I'm, I'm an optimist. I see that the world has responded to this and there's a unity here. And I think we have to learn that there aren't multiple races, there's just one race, it's the human race, we're in this together, that black, brown, white, Asian, Hispanic, uh, Native American, every kind of culture can come together and work on solving the, the bigger problems and, and in terms of treating ourselves fairly, with justice, uh, with without bias. We need to change that. Yeah, totally. It feeds really nicely into a lot of the work that I do around inclusion and encouraging people to develop that sense of belonging. And, and that's really difficult to do if you don't feel that you belong, right. um, which is where a lot of this is coming from. Um, Chris, have you got anything you want to add in? Um, yeah, I think there was an interesting point where you kind of touched on, on people's perspective of work and how, you know, even the pandemic with the coronavirus currently happening, do you think a lot of people will start looking at their career and maybe taking a jump into a different direction? Um, personally, you know, looking back on my experience, I was working in finance at Ford and I really needed something a bit more creative and literally jump with both feet into the creative world, which I've never, you know, never studied at university didn't really do it at school, but I just was really hungry for that. And I know it's something that you kind of champion and love what you do. Um. Yeah, again, uh, it's like 2020 is like a, a year we wish we could hit reset on, but we can't, we're here. And I think the pandemic that we're all going through with self-isolation, uh, social distancing, it has really upset the entire world in so many different ways. And I thought 
And I think the reason why the Black Lives Matter moment is happening right now and why we're so unified is because we've never felt more connected that I don't have to know anything about either of your lives, but I know that we're going through very similar no. things, that we're desperately in need of some social interaction right now, that we haven't seen as much of the outside world as we have in the last six months. And so there's, there's something funky going on. I think, again, um, the, the alarm has been has gone off and it's time for us to pay attention. So what are we seeing here? I've noticed, and this is not scientific, I haven't measured this, but I've noticed with greater frequency and uh, that we're experiencing these kind of outbreaks with SARS, with MERS, uh, and, and now with COVID-19. It's happening more and more frequently. And what does that mean? That's a reflection on, I think, the cohabitation of different animals and species that are not meant to be together, the destruction of natural habitats, uh, natural environment that is allowing for a virus to jump from species to species. And then here we are. So it, I don't think I'm, I'm telling you something that is a giant leap of faith that what's happening now will happen again with greater frequency and potentially greater devastation. I think it's an opportunity for us to to wake up and reevaluate how we move around the world. Uh, I'm not talking about literally move around the world, but what is what is the idea of a neighborhood? What does work mean and why do we have to be there? And what is transportation? So I think we need to to reinvestigate local communities, having things made here, wherever it is that you live, so that we're not exporting things back and forth because we realize the supply chain is probably pretty busted up right now. And if we're, we're less reliant on offshore uh goods and things that are made somewhere else, maybe we can strengthen our local communities and, and live and behave in and invest in the communities that we live in. There's there's a lot of things I think are changing that we, we're learning new habits that we can work and maybe even be more efficient working from home and therefore uh, creating less pollution, less wear and tear on the environment and the things that we have out there that maybe we don't need all the things that we used to think and believe that we couldn't live without. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Uh, can I add one more thing here? Yeah, go for it. Something that I'm very passionate about, obviously, is education. And so we can see students are electing to take um, a gap year. A lot of schools haven't figured out, haven't been able to adapt to how to teach distance-based learners. And they're saying, well, per a certain percentage of this is on the parents. So what are we paying for? And why haven't we already adopted a method of teaching that is part in-person potentially and off-site. And it, it doesn't make sense. The whole model has been has been wholly yeah. inefficient in the way of adopting new technologies, new pedagogical models to teach and to share and to learn that this has just accelerated the whole decline of it and potentially showing where all the weak spots have always existed. But now we're having a conversation about it. I, I agree with that. I just, you just touched on a couple of things that I was discussing with somebody earlier, actually, there, Chris, of kind of around that that model of education. And particularly here in the UK at the moment, we've now got well, our students aren't going to be going back until September. And there's worries about the, the impact that's going to have on students' learning. There's the same situation here where there's huge numbers of students that are opting to defer potentially, which is going to have impact on university funding. 
it's going to really start to shake up the the higher education sector here on i suppose one of the things i would like to ask you linked to that is the one of the the things that i would say is very um very well documented or seen in the media and in the movies that we consume over time around um, America in particularly is that kind of um, the opportunity that you are afforded when you go off to college and how if you don't take that opportunity which a lot of young people might not be doing now because of uh, COVID-19 is that a good thing? I mean I think it's a good thing but is America ready for that? Is that a, that's a big question i know but it is a really big question yeah and, and we're three three people in a room trying to answer that question so i'll, I'll yeah. do my best i i think college has been a great experience for a lot of people uh, i'm speaking for myself and the people that i see because it's the first time you get to move in the world as an adult to make your own decisions and living at home has its benefits but also has its disadvantages so in, if the college experience is nothing more than for you to figure out your voice in the world and to have real meaningful consequences to your actions, and if we take that away, we'll have to find a new way to do that. I don't know what that answer is. I think college, uh, we can see this because it's the first time you've broken away from the rituals and behaviors and systems that are in place with your parents. You may explore a different religion, a different life philosophy. You, you might be exposed to ideas and people and cultures and customs that are totally foreign to you. And I think that's really important. But there are other ways to accomplish that. And I think some people, and I, I can't uh, say speak on how the medical situation is going to be in terms of the virus, but taking a gap year, traveling, living abroad, immersing yourself in cultures and foreign languages and different customs and places and food probably is a way better experience than what you might ex experience in a very small micro way in school. I think that's wonderful. And I know that I'm speaking from a very privileged place, but I've done as much as I can to have my little boys, and now not so little, to travel with me so that we can sit there and say, look, there's a whole nother way of living. And everything from the climate to architecture to the people, the language and the customs, we should just immerse ourselves in this. So I think that's going to raise a lot of questions, but here's how I look at it. Every crisis tests the system. If you look at, if you think about it, <clears throat> excuse me, if you think about an earthquake, an earthquake is, it can create a lot of devastation and an earthquake is going to reveal poorly built structures that were not designed and not thinking far enough into the future. And so what you see left are the buildings that stand, the units and the structures. And then we start to say, okay, what did they do right? And what are opportunities for us to do something better next time? The, the problem has been once these buildings have been reduced to rubble, new contractors come in and they build it almost the same way. It's like we just don't learn. And so sometimes you need a big enough shock to the system to hit reset. And I'm hoping in many ways we can do this as as individual communities, as a society and as as the world. Yeah, I would I would I would agree with that. I think the the, the test is whether or not people are resilient enough for that. I feel like sometimes mm. that there's a I was reading a, an article yesterday actually it was interesting about how a lot of people are looking for stability, understandably, um, coming out of this. And stability, in my opinion, in some ways doesn't necessarily move things forward, it just maintains a status quo of things. Yeah. Um and 
as somebody who has taken a step and, and set up their own venture, it is it, doing things like that are risky and they involve a certain element of, of bravery within them as well. Um, and so I think in, in some ways, there's gonna be a lot of people that would want to do things differently, but they may just be too nervous to. Um, so thinking more widely away from COVID, I suppose, if there's anybody listening that's thinking kind of, I'm, I'm not really sure about where I should go next, but I know I'm a creative person, but I'm not sure how to kind of pin down how my creativity is going to come to life. Is there any advice that you might give them? Yeah. Um, I, I want to say something about this idea of stability and, and desire. It's like, it seems like we're always drawn to what we can't have. Like right now, we don't know when this is going to end, how many more lives are going to have to perish before this thing is resolved. And so that unknown is something that we're not comfortable with at, at all. And we've not been trained to think in this this space of discomfort not not knowing so we start to tell ourselves all kinds of crazy stories and unfortunately a very high percentage of the self-talk that we're having is really negative i think what we need to do is we need to surround ourselves with more positive people futurists uh, people who are at the leading edge of science medicine and technology to see kind of what they're doing because they're always looking for opportunity they're always mining for the next moment and and this is a moment right and creative people I think don't hang out around with a lot of other creative people who are looking for work, who don't know what's going on and lack imagination because that's only going to be magnified in the echo chamber that's in your mind. We, we definitely don't want to do that. Here's what I think, and I'm just trying to boil this down to something that's super reductive and simple for a creative person to understand. I see businesses and I like to observe things and I see two very similarly positioned fast casual restaurants that are serving super healthy food. I see how one has responded and the other has been very slow to adapt to what's going on. Let me point out the contrast here without revealing uh, specifics, right? One business has realized there's a lot of fear going on. If you're going to go and eat a salad, is it safe? Who's coughing? Who's serving? What are the preparations that you're making? So they reacted really quickly. They changed the access to their store. They basically barricaded the doors. The only way you can enter the store is to open a door and there's a table blocking your path and you can only pick up your food that somebody else hands to you. Whereas the other store, it's like, it's a wide open thoroughfare. It's raising a lot of questions. So if a, a patron who's sick comes in and starts coughing all over the place, how do you prevent this from happening? And they were very slow to adapt. The other, uh, the first example, they quickly had a designer, I'm sure, and a copywriter come up with an idea. They created this red ribbon that, that talks about their five-step safety protocol. And so when you pick up your food, there's this official seal that you have to break that it's just a story. I don't know if it's any safer. It probably isn't. But there's a story that they're saying and how they've changed and rerouted their whole system. Um, they've, they're also selling you unprocessed um, groceries, produce. Because for a little while there, it's been a nightmare to go to the supermarkets and buy that. And they have access to, to vendors, high quality vendors. So you can just buy a box of unprocessed foods that you go home and cook. I like to see the things like this. And they've changed the entire process of ordering, picking up, that it's actually preferred over the way it used to be. I used to show up, wait in line, tell somebody what I want, wait for that food to be ready, grab that food, and then decide where I'm going to eat it. 
Now, literally, it tells me when it's when it's done. They text message you. You pull up to the curb. You go and get your thing, and you're on your way. And I think that's a, a story of contrast between using creativity to solve a problem. And if you understand that the many industries and the and the verticals that are being impacted, travel, hospitality, uh, even car service, are impacted, use that great creative brain of yours and sit there and think, what am I scared of right now? How can I help this company? To communicate that they are they are a safe option and they're thinking ahead and making sure that my livelihood, my health is of paramount concern to them. I like that. It's very it's it's very um, customer centric. It relies on that ability to pivot and really understand your audience. And I think that's what a lot of brands particularly miss sometimes. They don't they they give a sense that they know who they're talking to, but they don't really know. And then a moment like this strikes and it becomes very apparent that there was a mask there all along and then that's dropped. And it's a little bit like, ah, what are we going to do now? Um, we're going to have to rethink our strategy in that respect as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, you also have to act fast. You have to act mm -hmm. fast. You can't just sit there and have a boardroom meeting about this and talk about it because while you're thinking, talking, debating, somebody else is executing. And in this moment, new relationships, new relationships are going to be formed that are going to be very difficult to break after this. So but we're changing all our habits, right? We're doing conferencing here and we're using different technologies to make this happen. Do we want to return back to the way things were? I'm not so sure. Well, what, are, um, what are your thoughts on uh, this, Chris Hunt? On that? Absolutely. Um, I think you can't just wait and weather the storm out as some of the businesses that are trying to do at the moment. I think this has all kind of been a shake up and a realization for people to think differently. You know, what if the world didn't change back to how it was? What are you going to change? How are you going to keep doing business? Um, how are you going to attract new customers? Um, so you can't, as Chris said, you can't just sit and wait. You got to act um, and think different. I think when you are coming from a creative field, you're doing that on a daily basis. And I think people who have a creative mind and spark can really take advantage of this and actually approach businesses with those ideas, how they can change rather than sitting on the fence. Yeah. You know, I think creative people always like to profess, think different, be different, go out of your comfort zone, think outside the box. And it's easy to be courageous for your clients when they when you want them to do something that you want. And I always find it ironic. Some of the the, the the most reserved, fearful people that I know are creative people. It's like, try this other style. Use a different tool. Try this different technique. Go and do this instead of that. And they just don't do it. So I think it becomes an empty slogan mantra that we say because it's a tool for us to convince other people. But I'm going to say to you, the creative people who are listening, to sum up that courage, summon up that courage and live the words that you speak to your clients. This is an opportunity and it doesn't even take that big of a shift in change for you to have meaningful impact on where you go from here and out. I, I read books on goal setting. And if, if you travel from say the West Coast to the East Coast and you point yourself in a direction, if you're only off by one degree, and I don't remember the exact calculation, but it's hundreds of miles off target. So that one degree of change can actually have meaningful impact on your life applied over time. So I wanna give you another example. I've been thinking about this a lot. 
like right now, uh, when everybody used their imagination, I have no idea if Steve or Chris, you're wearing pants. I have no idea. You could be wearing boxers. <laughs> you could wear uh, chaps, uh, assless chaps. I, mean, I don't know what you're wearing. Yeah, you just, I don't know. Speedo, whatever it is that makes you happy, right? But here's the thing that I'm not noticing is why are clothing retailers still marketing pants to me right now? I've been wearing the same pair of pants for a week. What they should do is they should say, you know, here's a five pack of tops that you can wear and you can cycle out so that you don't have to do laundry. Uh, you, you only do laundry once a week. These are super versatile. They're, they're friendly for camera. So there's not complex patterns that you see. Uh, they're very breathable so that when you're not on camera, it's like you're ready to go. So business casual. Why not market and talk to me as a taking action and reflect the times versus just reacting to what everybody else is doing? There's a lot of things and opportunities out there. It just, it doesn't even take that much creativity. No, that's, that's so true. And for the record, I've got a pair of jeans on. <laughs> so you um, say. <laughs> uh, it was, it's one of those, I, I, I was doing, I was working for a client this morning on camera where I needed to wear the shirt that I'm wearing now. And even, even when my uh, housemate came out of her room for breakfast this morning, she looked at me and went, why are you dressed? <laughs> We've got so used to seeing each other just staying in our pajamas or just being in some like sweats or something there. It's, it is it's so right what you say there. It's interesting. Yeah. Excellent. You, I don't know if you guys noticed, but do you see a lot of ads for home fitness equipment? Stretchy yeah. bands, weights. See, so people, people are figuring out, like, I can't get to the gym, I, but I need to move my body. So what makes sense? That's small, portable, and that's why we're being targeted right now. It makes yeah. sense. It, it does. So on, on that point as well, so there's been a rise of in the early days of lockdown here in the UK, it may have been the same in the US as well. There was a lot of people, particularly in the fitness industry, and that's part of my own career story as well. I used to be a PT and they made that shift to offer free online classes and to essentially give away their content free. And now they've got to the point where they really need to monetize it because their business needs the income and the revenue to be able to to keep going and they're struggling because people have got used to getting something for free if that's the business model that you adopt first of all do you think that's the right business model to adopt when you're if you're a business owner and how how can you convert people and take them on that and gently nudge them towards paying for something that they've got used to having for free Okay, you're probably asking the wrong guy this, and <laughs> as soon as I answer, then you'll know why. All right, okay, I, fine, fine. Okay, but I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say because <laughs> I really believe this in my heart. I really do. That the more you give to the world without strings, without expectations, the more you get. It's a give-get philosophy, and a lot of people are always, or a lot of people are approaching it as, what do I get out of this transaction? And they look at every single person as a transaction versus another human being. Who has a problem to solve uh, who who desperately wants to become something other than what they are right now for a lot of different reasons fitter uh, eat healthier be a better parent be a better student whatever it is they, they there's a goal that they want to achieve and if you can figure that out you can build a relationship and not just have customers in in the article written by Kevin Kelly, who is one of the co-founders of or Wired magazine he writes about having 1,000 true fans and he talks about why an audience is so much more powerful because an audience shows up for you whereas and, and they and they pay attention whereas a customer you have to pay to pay attention 
And there's a big difference here. And so I'm, I'm not sure entirely about the economic model here, but we've produced it to this point, I think over 800 videos on YouTube, countless mini decks on Instagram, and I just give it almost all of it away for free. I just hold back a little bit so that we can pay the people who work for us so that I can pay utilities and, and, and continue to uh, fulfill my obligations to the bank in terms of the mortgage that I have. But here's the really cool thing is that when you need something, you've been putting a deposit into the bank of goodwill that when you need something, when you want something, when you say, I've created a new product, you don't have to push that hard because they're ready and they'll support you. Uh, when I'm speaking to marketers, I ask them this and I ask them, how much is the email of one qualified customer worth to you? What do you spend to acquire cost of acquisition one new customer and then we go around the room like we're bidding and the numbers get higher and higher and higher depending on the value of the product that they're selling or a service and I said to them would you believe this that people actually pay us to be on our email list and they sit up like what so we have given up out so much content to try and help people on their journey that they voluntarily without any real perks become sustaining members we don't have a pledging drive we don't we don't hard sell anything and people donate money to us. They sign up to be counted as one of the 1 billion people that whose lives have been impacted and they freely, readily, happily give us their email so they claim a number and then they tell their friends about it. That's a social contract that we built. That's the relationship we built and it's really, really powerful. So if you have a gym that's giving out something for free. I think they have to sit, sit back and ask themselves, what are they in this business for? Is it to put warm bodies inside a room or is it to better the lives of people and to make sure that they're around so that their grandkids can see them and that they're setting a positive role model and then serve that mission, serve that higher purpose. The business model will present itself, but you got to do it from a truly genuine and generous place. Otherwise, it's just a veiled, thinly veiled marketing ploy. So I've got I've got one more question I want to ask you, and it's the question that I ask all guests um, as I wrap up the interview. I just want to check in with uh, our other Chris and see if he has any other questions he wants to ask you before I do that. No, I'm not sure if we've lost him there. I will, I will carry on as I was going to see. The one question that I do um, ask every single guest each week, so I think it's a really important takeaway for listeners, is what's your best piece of career advice that you could give the listeners today? Oh, the hard question for last. <laughs> Something that I've realized is that there is an abundance of tools and information and resources out there on the internet and we live in this wonderful information age where just about everything you want to learn is out there for free or for very little money. And yet we have people who are stuck, who aren't where they should be or want to be and are struggling mm -hmm. for all different reasons. And the hypothesis is that if they had just that one miracle secret answer, that one funnel hacking thing, the one tip to improve their portfolio, a plug in a brush, for Photoshop, something like that, that their lives would change dramatically. Well, all those things already exist. And if we accept that, then we have to ask ourselves and we have to be really honest as to why are you not where you want to be? 
And it almost comes, almost always comes down to you have a limiting belief as to why something will work and why something will not work. And I think, unfortunately, we've been bombarded with messages that this is easy, doesn't require work, and that everybody can success, be successful just because they will it. And that's not necessarily true. And we live in this really fast culture that we want instant results. We have instant ramen. We have fast fashion, fast food, fast living. Everything is now, now, now. And so when people reach out to me, they say, well, you know, I've been trying to grow my social influence. I've been posting. I've followed everything that you said, and it's not working. And without fail, every time I look into what they're doing, I see they've made four posts. It's like, is that the measure of which something is going to work or not? Sometimes I see them do it one time. And because it's not worked one time, that means it doesn't work. So I think we have to learn to love the game, play the infinite game. We have to love the pursuit. We have to enjoy making progress every single day. We have to, to understand that you have to be patient and you have to be smart and you have to focus less on activity and more on the results of what it is that you're doing. Um, I, I'm reading this book from Zig Ziglar. It's called Goals. And he shares mm -hmm. this little story uh, about this naturalist who studies the pine processionary caterpillar. He says it has a very unique trait. It follows in single file behind another caterpillar. So he devised an experiment. It's really strange. They just march in a single file, right? So he lined a pot up with a bunch of caterpillars such that they circled the perimeter. So end to end, there was no leader and there was no follower. They're all leaders and followers. And then he put a giant pile of pine needles in the middle of the pot. That's their favorite food to eat is pine needles. And the odd thing is they kept marching in a circle 24 hours a day, day and night for seven days until they all starved to death. When the food that they wanted was just mere inches away from them. And, and it, the whole point of the story is that don't confuse activity with accomplishment. Just because you're moving doesn't mean you're moving in the right direction. So we need to adopt a different mindset that we're capable of doing things to be generous, to help other people. And we need to be patient and, and believe that what we're doing will achieve the results because otherwise it's not going to work. My mind's going, my mind's blown with that one. Thank you for that. That's really, really, really great advice there. Um, thank you very much for your time today, Chris. I've enjoyed learning more about you, but um, especially hearing your opinions on some of the really topical and pertinent issues that are going on at the moment. Anything you'd like to add in, Chris? I think probably along the same lines for me, it's always been around learn by doing and fail fast. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you could always think what if and aim where you want to be, but if you don't actually take those steps every day and try something new or try something different, you will never know what you're doing wrong or what you're doing right. Um, I think there's a quote that kind of explains the term career is something that you look back on rather than something you look forward to uh, or look forward or aim to. You can mm -hmm. only really judge your career um, after you've kind of done it. Mm -hmm. And you can really analyze that only things you've kind of failed and succeeded. But the only way of doing that is actually by actioning everything that you can possibly do on a daily basis. Right. And that's something I've kind of taken on in terms of my career. 
And, you know, you start small with small companies and small clients, and then you keep doing and doing and doing, and then you're still failing at the biggest companies. You know, you're failing on small scale and big scale, and those are the, the real stepping stones that really pushes you forward. You, you just triggered something in my mind. If I, Do I have a few more minutes to say? Yeah, much time as you want. Yeah. Okay, okay, great. Um, as you were talking about this, I'm just, I recall reading that as human beings, we, we seek pleasure and we want to minimize pain. And mm -hmm. we want to be wise, but we want to do the work. And I think it was Aristotle who said this, is that wisdom is equal parts experience and reflection. You can't become wise without doing. And Chris, you were talking about this and that the fear of being judged about not being smart or not doing it the most optimal way or not doing your best work is so crippling and so paralyzing for so many creative people that they never do anything. That the act of doing itself is going to get you to the place where you want to be. And there's a, a book, I think it's, uh, what is it called? Rework by Jason Fried and David Heinemann Hansen, the founders of 37 Signals and Basecamp. And they said this, that they've learned that they are not very productive and efficient and innovative if they just work on these massive big projects. So they work in quarters, right? Like every three months. And they said that there's, here's a really radical idea. So a quarter is I think 12 weeks, four weeks in a month, three, mm -hmm. three months. Okay, 12 weeks. They said instead of doing one 12 week project, do 12 one week projects. You'll learn so much more. So they've taken it away from doing a 12 week sprint into doing 12 one week sprints. And each time they evaluate, they measure, and they, they, they learn so much. And they've accepted that, well, each iteration is not going to be amazing. And it's totally okay. And I've learned in my life, as you do, you learn and you measure and you look and you keep doing that. And you're more likely to do something great, like a masterpiece, a uh, web design, a piece of art, a painting, by doing this really rapid iterative approach versus sitting around and thinking, I need to do that one thing that's going to put my name on the map. That's where the wisdom comes from. So you do the work and you reflect. And the reflection can be very, very simple. Ask yourself, what did I do well? And what can I do to improve next time? Not about like what an idiot you are or how you screwed everything up. And, and that's a very positive way of framing it. Like what did you do well and what could you do better? And if you can do this, you're going to be great. And, and last little idea here is that um, we, we think of it like doing this big launch, this big product, or just some giant announcement. And that to me is a big gamble. And I'm not a gambler. I like to make small bets and not one giant gamble because if it, if it wins, fantastic. And if it loses, then I'm, I'm done. That's, an, that's going to bankrupt myself and my company. I don't want to work that way. Like that that's a really good way to end end today's episode so thanks again for your time to to both chris's uh with me today um if you've enjoyed what you've been listening to today don't forget to um subscribe and leave a review and we'll be back next week with another great guest on the podcast okay bye for now